everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by His grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's Word together each week. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 7, starting in verse 1. We find ourselves at the Sermon on the Mount in the middle of it, a very popular scripture that many people enjoy quoting throughout their lives many times to their own dismay, to their own negative effects on their lives because we take it out of context. We have a tendency to use this scripture as an excuse. And the worst part about it is we use it as an excuse on both sides. We use it to excuse ourselves so that we can do what we want, or we use it to excuse ourselves so that we can tell people to do what we want them to do. Jesus takes a full view on the method by which we can actually interact in a community. If you ever remember growing up, you remember that kid in school, usually in elementary school, he was or she was the teacher's pet, and they always knew all the right answers, they always knew what everybody should be doing, and even if you didn't want their input on it, they were happy to tell you in the classroom, while the teacher was teaching probably, you're doing that wrong, why are you doing it, or then they'd raise their hand and tell the teacher, teacher, they're not doing what you told them to, or maybe you have had a sibling like that at home who would do the same thing. They would make sure mom and dad knew that you were wrong. You would get so frustrated with them, so sick of them because they were the perfect child. They had a halo so bright you used it as a nightlight every night. You went to bed and they would be happy. Mom, dad, they're not doing what you asked them to do. Unfortunately, I was that kid. The reason I was that kid is because I was the one in charge at home when mom and dad would go off and do whatever they had to do. I was the one in charge, and I got to look at my sister and tell her, Petra, mom and dad put me in charge. You have to do what I say you have to do, and I was like nine, and she would look at me in her four- or five-year-old self and say no, and then I would get mad at her, and I would tell her, you have to do it, dad said, and she'd say no, and I would get angry at her, and I'm like, I'm in charge. You remember that sibling you had? You didn't, they might have been younger than you, they might have been older than you, but they were happy to tell you that you were wrong, they were right, and mom and dad were going to find out about it when they got back. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not, lest you be judged For with the same judgment you use, you will also be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look in the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. We're going to get to that last verse. That's the fun part of this entire sermon. Isn't it interesting, though, that Jesus puts that right in there in the middle of judge not or don't try and help someone out when you have an issue of your own. See, the discussion today is really about one thing and one thing alone. It is about the cognitive dissonance that we live in our lives every day. Let me put it a different way. It's about the lies we tell ourselves. 
And you might not think you lie to yourself, but you're human, so I know you lie to yourself because I lie to myself. Because the reality is, is when we take an inventory of ourselves, we usually don't like what we see. Or we try and rearrange things so that maybe when we're looking in the biblical mirror, it looks a little bit better to us. But for the most part, many of us live the way that James described when he said anybody who hears the word of the Lord but does not do it in its perfection, didn't say do it in some aspect, didn't say attempted, didn't say that they were doing their best. Anybody who hears the word of the Lord and does not accomplish it. Now, I don't know about you, but is anybody in here perfect? No, even those wonderful little kids that when they come into the world, they look like angels, and then once they hit two years old, they act like devils. I'm talking about Leo right now. He is wonderful. I love him. But sometimes in his perfection, I ask him to do something, and he screams back at me, and he thinks he's still a little angel. He's just having a wonderful time. I'm playing the drums like I want to, Daddy. I'm eating the pineapple like I want to, Daddy. I want an applesauce, Daddy. I'm like, no, you can. do you know what I had to do this week in my house? I had to put a lock on the pantry. Not because I want to starve him. He is well fed. If you've seen him, he does not need any more rolls on his body. He does not need any more muscles. But because... He thinks all I'm doing, Daddy, is I'm going to get food from the closet, and I'm getting what I want. As he climbs up on these wire shelves with no strength in them whatsoever, and all of a sudden the crock pot is falling down, and he thinks to himself, I'm perfect, Daddy. I'm doing everything you want. See, I'm feeding myself, and in the middle of it, I'm like, I'm going to harm you if the falling from the shelves does not harm you first. We kind of act like that with God a lot, don't we? I'm doing everything perfect you want from me, Daddy. I'm doing all the things you asked me to do, Daddy. I'm being a good Christian like you asked me to, Dad. Now, please don't misunderstand. This is not a conversation of shame. This is not a conversation of you're an awful Christian. This is not a conversation of how dare you lie to yourself. It's time to take the blinders off and see how awful and filthy you really are. We don't need someone to explain to us how messed up we are. We don't need people to interject how sinful we are and how broken we are. No, the conversation has nothing to do with what a bad person you are. The conversation has everything to do that when you have a fragmented mind, it cannot enjoy the fullness and the glory and the freedom that comes in a relationship with God. What do I mean by a fragmented mind? The minute you reach into your mind and carve off an area that you do not like because maybe it doesn't measure up to what you need, even if it's a good thing about you, but it's not quite good enough. The minute you reach into your mind and begin to say to yourself, that's not not really what it is. I don't really have that issue or it's not that big a problem. Or even if I have that issue, it's really not that important. The minute you begin to fragment, segment, or disintegrate your mind, what you have done is cornered off an area in your mind that can no longer participate in the glory of God. And God did not save part of you. God did not come to this earth so that he could save some of you. God did not come to this earth so that he could save pieces of you. He came to save all of you. That's why when the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Not a partial creation. Not something of a creation. All of you is made new. And we see that verse. And then we see how we act. We can't 
put them together and our only recourse is, well, maybe if I segment off this and I slide it off to the side, or maybe if I get rid of this part of me and I pretend it's not there, or maybe if I can keep this section of me that really is awful under wraps so that I never have to deal with it, if I can just shove it down enough under my thumb and manage it well enough, maybe then I'll buy into that I am a new creation. I wish it worked like that. I don't know if they make movies like this anymore, but does anyone remember, like, I think it was late 80s, early 90s, every movie seemed to have something to do with pollution and toxic waste. And every time, it was always the same story. It was either a TV show or it was a movie. And what would happen is everybody's having a wonderful time. They're outside. Kids are playing on the playground. Everybody's having a great day. Or maybe people are going about their day in the office building, back and forth. Nobody's thinking about anything bad. They're just enjoying their interactions with each other. And then all of a sudden, what happens? The ground starts to tremble. And all of a sudden, that playground or that building crumbles into the ground. And when they look down in that sinkhole, thinking it was just a sinkhole, this is a freak accident, what do they always end up? finding down there barrels sealed off and they start brushing off the dust and they look at it and they start wondering what it is and what's in this barrel and it has that hazard sign on it for chemical waste and what always happens in those movies somehow that barrel got unsealed it might have been down there for 10, 20, 30, 50 years, but that toxic waste that they'd put down there finally has come unsealed, and now it's beginning to affect the foundation of the buildings built on top of it. Anybody who's drank the water that's near it, as it has been affecting it all that time, becomes sick and ill, and they start trying to figure out, what do we do? We've got to seal these things back up, but there's no way to seal it. We've got to figure out a way to put it back down. So we can, And all they find that they can do is that they have to go down in the mess in the disaster and remove it and dispose of it properly. Now, if you miss the metaphor, you can't close off your mind permanently. It doesn't matter what it is, no matter how innocent that thing is. The minute you fragment your mind, you take that little piece and you shove it off in the corner so that you don't have to deal with it anymore. What ends up happening in the darkness is the same thing that always happens when moisture is left unattended in a dark corner of the house. What ends up happening is that mold begins to activate and it becomes something sickening. And if it's not tended to, it doesn't matter how well you've closed off that area, it doesn't matter how much you've tried to forget about it, it doesn't matter that you have tried to lock it in a room, it begins to infect the whole house. You cannot fragment your brain. It does not work. God did not make you with a brain that can be sectioned off, that can work with compartmentalization. I know that men like to pretend we compartmentalize things really, really well. We don't. We're just much better at ignoring half of our mind in general when it comes to the stereotype than women are. Women say they can't close things off. Everything's always going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, but they try and move so fast that they can't see anything, and so they just move over the problems faster and faster and faster and faster, and all the time that they're moving over the problems, it's just going ahead and getting worse, and and worse and worse till that seal finally breaks and the sludge starts moving everywhere. With men, we like to pretend, well, I've sectioned that part of my brine off. I don't have to deal with it anymore. And eventually it starts to seep into everything. Preacher, what does this have to do with judge not? What does this have to do with the plank? What is the reason Jesus says don't judge, and please don't misunderstand, look at the rest of the Bible. If any of you sees a brother who has fallen into sin, you who are spiritual, 
restore him in a spirit of love. You want to know what you're doing? If you see someone who is in a sin and you go to them and restore them in a spirit of love, you are judging. You are making an assessment. This is wrong. This is right. And we need to get you back to what is right and what is not away from what is wrong and all the others. So it's not an issue of don't call sin, sin. It's not an issue of shy away. What Jesus is addressing is the cognitive dissonance we try and live in. He says, don't judge unless you're going to be willing to be judged with the exact same thing that you just threw out. What's his point? If you're going to go to someone and tell them they're wrong, you better have taken an inventory of your life and be willing to look at where you're wrong. Now, this is not about be perfect, because if that were the case, then nobody could ever go to anybody and tell them, listen, this isn't okay. We need to get you back on the right track. There would be no way to do it. It's not about, well, I have to be perfect, and then I'll go ahead and deal with it. No, it's about judge not, because when you judge, you open yourself up to the same avenue. The reality is, is that you shouldn't be going to anybody to address something in their life unless you are equally willing to have someone else come into your life and address something that exists there. This is not an issue of Jesus says, well, don't judge because then you're going to be judged. No, it's an issue of be aware. When you judge, it is a two-way street. You want to know how you can be really, really spiritual about this? Before you get ready to go to someone and point out something in their life that you know is not godly, and it might not even be sin, by the way, Not everything we point out has to be sin. Not everything broken in a house is a disaster. Maybe left unattended, it can become a disaster. Sometimes things in our lives don't actually start out as something sinful. It's just something that's slowly sitting there matriculating that if it's not attended to can become something spiritually threatening. That's not the issue. But the point of this is if you're going to go and assess someone's life in a manner of spiritualness, in a manner of love, You cannot do it unless you're willing to allow someone else come into your life. Now listen, do not go home and do not talk to your closest friends or your spouse and immediately begin. Listen, I've been trying to think about something to talk about you with a long time, honey. And now that the pastor's preached this, I think it's time we finally address this. You are and then go off on that. Because I'll tell you exactly what will happen. As soon as you point out in their life, right after this sermon, here's what's wrong with you, dear. Here's what's wrong with you, sweetheart. They're going to turn around. Well, here's what's wrong with you. I don't know who you think you are coming into my... Listen, that's not how it works, okay? And let me give you a little bit of marriage advice. And I know some of you, many of you, all of you have been married longer than I am, and that's fine. But let me give you some principled marriage advice. Two pieces, actually. Number one, if one spouse comes to the other one to address something that is an issue, do not respond, well, you do this. That might be true. But if the initial conversation is from one person, don't try and manipulate it to switch it back to them. That doesn't solve anything. I'm not saying ignore that. Just set it aside for another time. Or if they open the conversation, is there something with me now that I've addressed something with you that I think is an issue? Is there, be, do you see what happens? Because we do that a lot. I have something I need to talk to you about, sweetheart. And it might be something simple. It might be something that you come to in kindness. But sometimes because we live in that cognitive dissonance, we don't want someone to touch that broken part of us. We don't want someone to touch that tender part of us. As soon as they walk in and they gently prick it, they tap it. But it's so tender. And we respond like, I can't believe you would tell me I'm such a bad person. Here's what's wrong with you. Does that ever work? Listen, if someone comes to you to judge you, 
if someone comes to me to judge me, the proper response as a Christian, we're assuming that both of us are Christians. We're assuming that we both love God. Assume the other person loves you, by the way. It's a lot easier to work through whatever they're telling you if you assume they love you. Do your best not to defend yourself. Even if they're wrong. And they might be wrong. You don't want to know why? Because we're imperfect and we're going to get it wrong every now and then. But if they're wrong in their judgment of you, but your base assumption is they love God, they love me, they're not trying to harm me. You want to know what that does? Even if they miss it, it preserves the relationship. Now, that doesn't mean just let people walk into your life and start walking all over you. That's not what I mean at all. And you can go ahead and give clarity. You can go ahead and give a response. They might be saying something to you, and you might need to go ahead and explain, that's not what I meant. This is what it was. That's not what I was doing. There's nothing wrong with that. The issue is when we have an attitude of, like, I can't believe you would dare look into my life as though you are more spiritual. This is not a conversation of someone being more spiritual. This is a conversation of bear one another's burdens. This is a conversation of, but make sure if you're the one going to do the judging. If you're not okay with someone else coming into you. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Because look at the next analogy Jesus uses. If someone has a speck in their eye. Have you ever had an eyelash in your eye? Isn't it miserable? Isn't it the worst? Doesn't it feel like there is a full on tree stuck in your eye and all it is is not and the worst part is is when people start gaslighting you when you look at them like i have an eyelash in my eye or there's dust in my eye will you please look and then they start looking at it for you and like there's nothing there there's nothing wrong and you start losing your mind like i know there is something there I, that was happening to me this morning on my way to church i was so angry i told god i didn't need an extra illustration he gave it to me anyways i could not get whatever was in my eye out of there it could not have been a piece of dust bigger than something I could have even seen, but it riddled my entire morning. I had to go get Leo pineapple, as we've already discussed. He says, Dada, pineapple, so I have to go over to the freezer. In the meantime, I'm fighting with my eye, trying to get it out of there. I'm pulling my eyelid away from my eye, because I think it's up inside my eye. I'm pulling my eyelid down. You ever do that trick where you try and get something out of your eye? By pulling your eyelid, the thing that's supposed to keep things out of your eye, away from your eye, and then you take that top eyelid and you pull it down over your bottom eye and somehow that magically makes it disappear. I don't know whatever old wives' tale or military joke that came up with that, but it is the it didn't help. My whole morning was obsessed. I've got this thing in my eye and I can't get Dada, put on Fox. I don't want to put on Zootopia again. Leave me alone. Dada, can I get pineapple? You've already had enough pine. Dada, waffle. I'm like, oh my goodness, leave me alone. I've got Isn't it interesting, he says, if you're going to deal with someone's speck, get the plank out of your own eye. You want to know what is interesting? All I had was a speck in my eye, but it felt like a whole tree was going through my head. What's even crazier, he doesn't say, don't ignore the speck in their eye. He just says, Deal with this so that you can. You ever seen blind people? Not, not, not the good ones. I'm not talking about the people who've been blind all their lives and, you know, they understand how. I'm talking about 
either someone who's younger and they're learning how to live blind or someone who's recently become blind. They just stumble through everything, hitting everything. If you ask them for help, they can't do anything because they just have no clue about anything around them. And they hit it. Do you understand what happens when you go to someone before first taking inventory of your life? They legitimately have a speck. And it might be legitimately messing up their life everywhere they go because even though it's just this tiny little thing, it's, it's I can't, and it's, and it's frustrating and it affects everything else, even though. How are you going to help them when you're in the same place? You know what ends up happening? You got something that's so obsessive to you because it's frustrating you and you just look over there. Let me help you with them. You want to know what you end up doing? You end up poking them in the eye instead of helping them out. Now listen, Jesus wants you to get the speck out of their eye. But a lot of good it does when you've got something stabbing through your entire head. The reality is most of us, we really don't have a plank. It's just what it feels like. Because we can't handle. I don't want to acknowledge that that's there in my life, God. If I acknowledge that, then it leads to a host of other things. It leads to the fact that I have to work through this area in my life where maybe someone was right about what they said about me. Maybe I am insufficient here. And if I am insufficient here, what does that do in this area where I've got trauma from my childhood or from my first marriage or from my first mar- or my only marriage or from my kids where they told me I was insufficient? If I have to deal with this, God, it opens the host of everything else. To- See, the only reason we live with a segmented brain, the only reason we live with this cognitive dissonance about things that are actually quite innocent many times is because we live in such terror. God, if I acknowledge this frailty here, does it make all these other lies that people have said about me true? See, today's sermon is really not about how do you help someone. It's about a conversation of honesty with yourself. Because we have this attitude that God, if I agree that this part of me is broken, what does that mean for all of the lies that everybody said about me all my life? What does it mean about me where they said I wasn't good enough? What does it mean about me where they said I was an embarrassment? What does it mean about the lies I've told myself where I feel like I'm just useless or worthless or not good enough or I can't do it or I have nothing to offer? And on it, God, if I acknowledge this part, what does it do to... So rather than ever dealing with that plank in our eyes, we say, let me just help everybody out. Let me just help someone else out. If I can look at other people's issues and I can help them with specks in their eyes, or if I can look at their issues and I can judge and help them get back on track, then maybe I won't have to deal with what's going on in my life. And instead, what we end up doing in our desperate attempt to run from the pain of our life, we end up running around and poking everybody else in the eye, causing more pain. And we run up to say, listen, I want to help you. I'm sincere in that I want to help you. I want to make sure that you love God, and I want to help you love him in a better way. And let me go ahead and help you. But because we've never sat down and let God put all of our brain back together, we run around. Let me help you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. Let me help you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to help. Let me help. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt I It's not about perfection. It's about letting all of yourself be all of yourself. You can't get rid of the parts of you that you don't like. The only thing you can do is let God redeem the parts of you that are actually lies. And let him catalyze the parts of you 
that are truth. You want to know what happens when you finally go in that room with all the mess that you've tried to hide? God, I don't want to remember how I've messed up. I thought you forgave me, God. I did forgive you. It's not about I'm trying to dredge up the past and make you feel bad. It's about there's some broken things left behind that I want to put back together. God, what about these other people? Don't they need help? They do need help. And I'm going to send you to some of them to help them. But until you let someone help you that I've already helped in this area, you're not going to be of any help to But instead, I'm not that bad. Don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. We use that so that we can do what we want and not have to be addressed in the areas that we're too afraid to address. And then we run around to everybody else like that all-knowing older brother who knows everything. And you, dad and mom put him in charge. You have to listen to me. I'm the one who's right. You're wrong. Let me get the speck out of your eye. And in the meantime... I want all of your mind to be whole. Because you want to know what ends up happening? We've talked a lot about, over the past five, six weeks, about a bunch of wounds, a bunch of brokenness, a bunch of deep trauma that has happened in the past. Let me explain something. The way that God heals that is by putting you all back together. But he can't put you all back together when you've still got sections of your life closed off to him. Preacher, I thought God knew everything. I thought God knows everything. I thought God doesn't need me to tell him anything. I thought the Bible says that don't worry about what you have to ask of your father because he already knows what you need before you even ask. I thought I didn't need to do any of that, preacher. Isn't it interesting that God looks at Abraham? Abraham goes up the mountain. Isaac is with him. I'm sure Abraham was not having a good day as he went up that mountain. Isaac is carrying on his back the very sticks that he's about to be laid on top of to be sacrificed. Abraham's carrying the fire. And they're going up this mountain. Isaac looks at his dad and says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide. And they're getting up to this mountain. And then Abraham lays Isaac out on all those sticks. And I find it interesting that Isaac never fights or protests, just submits to his father. And as Abraham is getting ready to light that thing and take Take that dagger and plunge it into his son. God shouts out, stop. And then he says the most confusing phrase in the whole of the Bible. Abraham, now I know. God, what you mean now you know? I thought you already knew the now you know, so why do you now you know when you already knew what the now you know is? Did anybody follow that? I didn't. Now I know, Abraham. What do you mean, now you know, God? You know everything. You knew everything before. In fact, the Bible says you stand outside of time. You see things beginning to end. You already know everything. In fact, there is no guesswork with you because you stand at the end of time fully understanding, comprehending all that can be, all that will be, all that has been, and you extend even past when there can be nothing else. What do you mean, now you know, God? God knows things two ways. He knows things cognitively. Because he sees all of it. Not only does he see all of it, he can influence it. Not only can he influence it, he can force it to do whatever he wants. So please don't misunderstand this conversation as though God is limited in his power. You and I move through time. Not much of a choice. 
Even in perfection, even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve still had to move through time. Isn't it interesting? God said there was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. Just because everything was perfect doesn't mean there was no time. It just didn't matter as much because Adam and Eve were perfect, so they didn't have to worry about, when am I going to have to get this done? When am I going to, I'm going to live forever. So there was no stress of when. It was just you get to enjoy the flow of time. God sees it all. You and I have to move through time. When God looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, now I know. He said, Abraham, I already saw it. The thing I got to do with you is I got to walk with you through it. I already knew what it was going to be, Abraham. But there's something special when you invite me alongside when you've got no clue. There's something special, Abraham, when you invite me down to the finiteness of your life. Let me be close next to you and walk with you as you discover what I already knew. And now it's not now I know, Abraham. It's we both know. Do you understand the reason that God wants you to tell him? Or God wants you to let him into the messed up areas that he already knows about? It's not because he doesn't know it. It's because there is a closeness. There is an intimacy when rather than God seeing in his all-knowing can see through the door as though it's not there. But when I go up to him and I take him by the hand and I look at him and say, I don't like this room very much, God. I don't like this part we're about to go into. And he's holding my hand and I'm holding his hand. And he looks at me and says, that's okay. What's even crazier, he never opens the door. He'll just sit there with me and say, when you're ready. And then when I finally open that thing, you want to know how he reacts? Not in embarrassment. He doesn't revile back as though a smell has come from there. And let me tell you, it is probably death in that room wherever we have tried to hide it away from ourselves. Well, we've tried to hide it so much so that not even God can see it, even though we know that's not true. He doesn't shudder back, oh my goodness, I didn't realize how awful you were. The moment I open that door, you want to know what he does? He waltzes right in with a smile on his face. Not because whatever's in there is okay, but because all of a sudden he gets to look at me and say, J.J., now I know what's in here. And he's not going to run in there and start taking his hammer and swinging. All right, let's break this. Let's get this. Let's clean. He's going to walk through and say, let's just handle this thing right here real fast. God, that's a messed up area of my life. I get that. God, I don't like that area. I understand you don't like that, but let me show you what's beneath it. Let me show you what I put there that got in the way. Let me show you what I had intended for this to be before all of the mess of life. The issue of judge not lest you be judged. The issue of don't touch the speck until you deal with the plank. It has nothing to do with keep your mouth shut. It has everything to do with God wants you to stop being so fragmented in yourself so that he can show you the whole person that he came to redeem. Now here's the confusing part. Let's go ahead and say you're in a position where God says, I want you to go over and I want you to judge. You've dealt with the plank. I want you to go over and deal with that person's spec. Let's say you're in that position where God actually prompts you. Go deal with the spec. Go deal with the judgment. 
Isn't it interesting at the very end, he says, don't give to the dogs what is holy and don't cast pearls before swine. Just because you are in a position where God says you're healthy enough to judge that, you're healthy enough to look at that speck, and please don't misunderstand, health does not mean perfect. It just means you happen to be a little bit healthier in your spirit than the other person God is sending you to. At the very end of all of that, he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. You understand what he's saying is we can be pig-headed sometimes. I'm not a pig. Yes, you are. So am I. There are just times where we're not willing to hear it. God help us sometimes when we're like that. I think it's wonderful that God still says, I'm willing to be patient with you when you're done rolling around in the mud in the mess like a pig and not willing to hear anything. But if he's sending you and says, you can now go judge, you can now go deal with a speck. He also says, be careful. Not everybody's ready to hear just because you can give it. Sometimes there's wisdom in shutting up. Much like I'm sure some of you would like me to do. I'm almost done. Sometimes there is wisdom in keeping your mouth shut. You might see a broken piece in someone's life, and you might be healthy enough to go and deal with that speck in their eye. You might see a fault in someone's life. And please understand, when I say fault, I do not necessarily mean sin. It might just be a fault line, something waiting to break that is not yet sin but can soon become that. You might see a fault in someone's life and you are able to go in and judge because you're able to do it spiritually and you're open to someone else coming in and receiving it even though it might be painful, even though it might be difficult to receive. You're in that position. Just because you can, God says, exercise wisdom and caution because sometimes when you go in a spirit of kindness and love, once you give it, not only will they trample on it, but they'll tear you apart for it. I wish we were better as humans. I really do. He's not talking about non-Christians, by the way. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you if they persecute you for my name. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be good. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is to Christians. This is to people who love Jesus, love God, want to follow him and worship. And in the middle of it, he calls us all pigs. Not talking about non-Christians. And he's not saying you are a pig. He's just saying sometimes we act like it. So if he's saying get ready to go and judge. Get ready to go and help people get that speck out of their eye. He's also saying make sure before you open your mouth. Take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit. God, is this something where it'll be received, or is it something where I'm going to be torn apart? Because God does not send his children in to die for the souls of others. Pretty sure there's plenty of people who have sacrificed their lives and martyred themselves. Yes, there are, when led by God. But remember what Paul said. Paul said, I wish that I could be sacrificed so that all of my people could be saved. But one sacrifice was already given. Do not misunderstand when you are going in to try and help someone. You are not the Savior. You're just the messenger. 
And so if in giving the message God has not told you this one might cost you your life, if in giving the message you can tell it's going to be something where they turn and try and tear into you, keep your mouth shut. Not because you don't want them to get better. Not because you don't love them. But because God said, I'm not willing to sacrifice you for them. I've already sacrificed my son for that. You're not someone he's willing to sacrifice. Preacher, what about martyrs? What about people who lose their jobs? He's not sacrificing you. That's him bringing you closer to home. He's not willing to sacrifice you to save someone else. He might be willing to bring you home. And through that, someone else sees the glory of God. But he's not willing to place you on a cross as though you are the Savior that needs to die for them. It's tough judging. You want to know how you're ready to judge? When you look at God and say, God, is this, am I even willing to hear this? Because sometimes we don't see everything wrong with us. We just don't. It's not possible. We like to act like we're self-aware, like we see everything. about. I know exactly who I am. We have no clue who we are. We are very unself-aware. And so really the only thing you can say to God is, God, I'm getting ready to try and minister to someone. And in doing that, I'm going to have to point something out in their life that they might not like. God, if it were me, would I be able to receive it? Because at some point it will be you.